afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Asia Initial Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. My name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asia Initiative Lecture Series. For those who are new to the Institute of World Politics, IWP is a graduate school of statecraft, national security, international affairs, and intelligence. We have a doctoral program as well as five master's programs and 18 certificates of graduate study and a continuing education program. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have Colonel David Maxwell, who will be presenting a lecture on security situation on the Korean Peninsula. Colonel Maxwell is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which is a Washington-based nonpartisan research institute focusing on national security and foreign policy. Colonel Maxwell is a 30-year veteran of the US Army, retiring as a Special Forces Colonel with his final assignment teaching national security at the National War College. He served over 20 years in Asia, primarily in Korea, Japan, and the Philippines. Colonel Maxwell served on the RK US Combined Forces Command Staff and the Special Operations Command Korea. He's the co-author of the first Con Plan 5029, the plan for North Korean instability and regime collapse. He commanded the Joint Special Operations Task Force Philippines, Philippines and was a G3 at the US, special, US Army Special Operations Command. Following retirement, he served as Associate Director of the Security Studies Program at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. Colonel Maxwell is on the board of directors of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, the International Council of Korean Studies, the Council on Korean U.S. Security Studies, the Special Operations Research Association, the OSS Society, and the Small Wars Journal. He earned a BA in political science from the Miami University and an MA in military arts and science from the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and from, and from the School of Advanced Military Studies and an MS in National Security Studies from the National War College. Colonel Maxwell has taught unconventional warfare and special operations for policymakers and strategists at graduate schools in the DC area. Colonel Maxwell, thank you very much for joining, for joining us today and we, we look forward to your presentation now. Uh, thank you, Amanda. And uh, thank you to the Institute for World Politics, uh, Institute of World Politics. Uh, it is a really great uh, academic institution and I'm uh, honored to be able to uh, present today. Uh, so I've, um, I'm going to talk on the security situation, uh, and I, um, I'm going to share my my screen here just to give you um, some uh, some recent visuals, uh, past and present, of um, of uh, North Korea, and to give you some idea of how things look in North Korea at the Joint Security Area in Panmunjom and. Uh, current and former presidents and, uh, and supreme leader. Uh, today, I'm gonna to emphasize uh, throughout this presentation and hopefully in response to your questions, uh, some key points. Uh, number one is the importance of deterrence, defense, you know, the desire for denuclearization, uh, the Korea question, which is found in, in paragraph 60 of the Armistice Agreement in 1953, which is about the unnatural division of the peninsula. Uh, and using our own superior form of political warfare uh, to, uh, to deal with North Korea, which rests on a foundation of a rock solid uh, uh, South Korea-US alliance 
Um, and of course, based on realistic assumptions about the nature, uh, the strategy and objectives of the Kim family regime. So that's really what I'm gonna cover. And let me say up front uh, that, uh, of course, I support peace on the Korean Peninsula. I support diplomatic solution to uh, the North Korean uh, nuclear threat. Uh, I support South Korean engagement with the North, uh, but I do not support a weakening of the South Korean military uh, and the South Korean US defensive capabilities. Uh, I also believe that there cannot be uh, success for the United States, for the Republic of Korea, or for Japan uh, without a strong ROC US and Japan US alliance. Now, despite the above, I think, you know, what I've just said, uh, I think that we have to accept that North Korea uh, may have a continued hostile strategy. Uh, in fact, I, I believe they do. Uh, and therefore, while we prioritize diplomacy, uh, we have to maintain uh, preparation and being prepared for the worst cases. And I'll talk about those. Now, I hope I'm wrong here. Uh, I hope that Kim Jong-un will denuclearize, dismantle his nuclear weapons, uh, and seek peaceful coexistence. Uh, but I don't think that's likely. Um, now, let me also say that uh, in my opinion, there are no experts on North Korea. Uh, it is the most difficult intelligence target. It's the proverbial hard target. You know, at best, uh, we are students and I consider myself a student trying to understand the nature of the regime uh, and the security problem. That said, as I go through, you're gonna hear me make some pretty de definitive or declarative statements uh, that might sound like facts or sound like I'm presenting facts. Uh, and that's really based on uh, you know, my long study of, of uh, Korea and I've really um, internalized uh, my beliefs and I will present them in a very um, declarative way. That said, anything I say can and should be challenged. Uh, none of us really know what, uh, uh, what, what's going on in the mind of Kim Jong-un and the Kim family regime. Uh, so please consider that. Now, people ask first and foremost, you know, what is uh, the North Korean strategy? Now, when people talk about uh, the North and they talk about Kim Jong-un, often people will say, Kim knows, Kim knows something. Uh, and I think when people say Kim knows that we lose the debate, you know, people will say Kim knows he cannot win a war with the South. Kim knows he cannot absorb the South and rule South Korea. Kim knows uh, China will not let him attack the South. You know, Kim knows, but we really cannot know what he knows. Uh, and uh, those things, whether he, he, he thinks he can win a war, thinks he can occupy South Korea, rule South Korea, uh, you know, or that uh, China won't let him attack, you know, those are in his mind and we can't know that. And so we should not wish away uh, things about Kim Jong-un, you know, applying our logic, you know, that he knows, that he knows he can't win a war. Uh, we can only know what uh, Kim Jong-un and the Kim family regime have actually said and what they have done for the last 70 years. And that's really what we must assess. And that's really what I base uh, my remarks on, uh, what they have done and what they say. And I think that's most important to keep in mind. Um, that said, we should really start with Occam's razor. You know, the simplest answer to, uh, to North Korea's strategy is what he has told us uh, and what he's told the Korean people in the North uh, for the last 70 years. And we spin what he told us and what he tells us at our peril. 
Uh, so just to put things in perspective, uh, do we believe that Kim Jong-un has abandoned the seven decades old strategy of subversion, coercion, or extortion, or what I like to call blackmail diplomacy, and the use of force to achieve unification uh, dominated by the guerrilla dynasty and gulag state, which is necessary in their calculus to ensure the survival of the Kim family regime. And in support of that strategy, uh, do we believe that Kim Jong-un has abandoned the objective to divide, to split the ROC-US alliance uh, and get US forces off the peninsula? Now, has Kim Jong-un given up his divide to conquer strategy? That is to divide the alliance to conquer the ROC. And we should never forget that North Korea is a master of denial and deception. They've got some 5,000 underground facilities uh, in which they hide everything in, in the North. Uh, and so um, they apply denial and deception to all that they do from military operations to their strategy to diplomatic negotiations. Further, we should keep in mind that North Korea engages in active subversion of the Republic of Korea, as well as of the Alliance. Uh, you know, all we have to do is look at the missions of the United Front Department and the 225th Bureau uh, to realize that they are trying to subvert the political process uh, in South Korea. But I would say that the, the root of all problems in Korea is the existence of the most evil mafia-like crime family cult that we call the Kim family regime. And again, that has the objective of dominating the Korean Peninsula under what I like to describe as the guerrilla dynasty and the gulag state. Now, those are my completely biased views of, of the nature, objectives, and strategy of the Kim family regime. So to put things in perspective, the strategy is really based on its vital national interest, uh, which everyone describes as survival of the Kim family regime. Not survival of the nation state, not survival of the Korean people living in the North, but survival of the Kim family regime. And of course, the Kim family regime is, is based on uh, the, the Japanese, uh, the anti-Japanese partisan warfare that Kim Il-sung, the great leader, led uh, during the end of World War II, uh, during World War II, uh, as the leader of the Red Army, the Soviet Army's uh, special, 88th Special Independent Sniper Brigade. He led a guerrilla force, and they built this myth that he was the great guerrilla leader uh, who liberated South Korea uh, from Japanese occupation. Uh, that is a myth, but it is the foundation uh, for the legitimacy of the, of the regime. Now, the strategic aim of the regime is unification of the peninsula. Uh, that, is, that is really what they believe they must do. They must complete the revolution, which is what uh, their constitution calls for. They must rid the peninsula of foreign influence. Uh, and unify the entire peninsula under, under uh, the Northern rule. And they do this, as I said, through subversion, coercion, extortion, and use of force. And, and that coercion and extortion is described by blackmail diplomacy, which is the use of threats, increased tensions, and provocations to gain political and economic concessions from the South, from the US, and from the international community. And the key condition they need to achieve their strategy is splitting the ROC-US alliance, dividing the ROC-US alliance, and driving US forces off the Korean Peninsula. Again, divide to conquer. Now, they also have a desire to be recognized as a nuclear power. Uh, they want to be, you know, they would like to be at least like Pakistan, uh, Israel, India, 
uh, and be recognized as a nuclear power. Uh, they also, I think, would be amenable uh, to negotiations in a similar situation uh, to the US and the USSR. Uh, when we negotiated SALT and START, the strategic arms limitation talks, strategic arms reduction talks. And I believe they would like that because that means they would keep their nuclear weapons and limit them and perhaps reduce them, uh, but keeping them is of, of paramount importance. Now they believe that nuclear weapons are, are key to deterrence. Um, Wang Zhengyap, who defected in 1997, was the highest ranking defector uh, up to that time and still really the highest ranking defector. He was the father of Juche ideology, the fundamental ideology of the regime, which uh, we generally translate as self-reliance, uh, but it's really much more than that. Uh, but he, he defected because he uh, believed that Kim, Jong, uh, Kim Jong-il at the time uh, was, was going to uh, really destroy the country. Uh, they had just come out of the arduous march, the famine of 94 to 96, and he thought that he could uh, ensure peace on the peninsula by defecting, informing the South and, and the rest of the world about the regime. But we asked him when he defected, you know, North Korea has spent all this money on their military developing the fourth largest army in the world that is postured to attack the South, but why have they not attacked uh, the South to execute their campaign plan to unify the peninsula since 1953? And he looked at us like we were, we had uh, a horn growing out of our head like unicorn. And, uh, and he said, well, South Korea, we can't win a war against South Korea if the United States supports South Korea. And furthermore, the United States uh, will use nuclear weapons against North Korea, against Pyongyang. And that really uh, tells us two things. One is that our declaratory policy does work, uh, that, uh, that, you know, that contributes to deterrence. Uh, they fear our nuclear weapons. Um, and second, it also explains why the regime has been pursuing nuclear weapons since the 1950s. I mean, since uh, uh, you know, MacArthur threatened to use them against China, since Eisenhower threatened to use them to, to uh, drive the conclusion to the armistice, uh, and uh, since they're, the lesson that they learned from US air power that devastated the infrastructure in North Korea uh, during the Korean War. And since the 1950s, they pursued nuclear weapons, sending 250 scientists to Moscow in the 50s and early 60s to get their PhDs in technical disciplines. In 62, they got the first experimental reactor from the USSR. And they've been pursuing this uh, you know, ever since to develop nuclear weapons. Of course, it really didn't become uh, a, a you know, well-known problem until the early 90s. Uh, and which when we brokered the agreed framework in 1994 to try to freeze their uh, nuclear program uh, in return for 500,000 tons of fuel oil and two light water nuclear reactors that would not be able to produce nuclear weapons or fissile material. Um, but of course they cheated on that agreement uh, because they have no intention of giving up their nuclear weapons. Um, and so, you know, we, we've successfully deterred them because of our military, our support to South Korea, and because of our nuclear capability, but that nuclear capability that we possess has, uh, you know, contributed to their belief that they must have nuclear weapons, because one last belief that Kim Jong, or Huang Zhangyap told us is that the regime believes that the United States will not attack another nuclear-armed country.
Uh, and so that really uh, sets the, uh, the stage for, uh, you know, for where we are uh, in the strategic uh, uh, situation. Now, as I talk about the Korean Peninsula, I like to talk about the big five. Uh, and these are the big five issues uh, around the peninsula. The first one, of course, is the absolute worst case. That is a resumption of hostilities. Uh, that is war. That is North Korea attacking the South to execute its campaign plan to rapidly cross the DMZ, get across the Han River, and maneuver its forces all the way to Pusan uh, before the U.S. can reinforce the peninsula uh, with follow-on forces from Japan and from the continental United States. It believes that it must conduct a rapid attack in order to, uh, to, uh, to be successful. Now, of course, the ROC-US Combined Forces Command, the bilateral combined command of consisting of, uh, of South Korean and US forces commanded today by General Akamura, sometime in the future will be commanded by a Korean general. Uh, that is the command that is charged with maintaining deterrence, and being able to defend the Republic of Korea if North Korea attacks. Uh, so you'll hear a lot about the United Nations Command, US Forces Korea, but the key warfighting element, the key organization that is charged with deterrence and defense is the ROC US Combined Forces Command. And that command answers to both governments, both presidents. You'll hear every, every commander uh, say that uh, he works for both presidents. And that's really important because it is not a U.S. command, it's not a Korea command, it's a combined command. So war is the worst case, and we've got to deter, uh, deter war. And we do that by uh, military strength, combined military strength and readiness. And of course, the key to readiness is training. And as you hear from the news uh, and whatnot, the, uh, the North is always... Uh, attacking our training and our training exercises. We just had uh, one of the two major exercises, annual exercises uh, in August, uh, and that's very necessary uh, to maintain readiness. And the readiness is based on practicing the defense plans for South Korea to defend against North Korean attack at the highest level. The theater command uh, and the component commands, the air component, the ground component, the naval component, the marine component, and the special operations component. Uh, they have to exercise. And often you'll hear that this is computer simulation training. Uh, and, some, and some people will say, why is it training in the field? Well, the command conducts field training all year long. But to really exercise the highest level staff uh, planning, intelligence, communications, uh, and command decision-making, it, it is best done through computer simulation uh, because it allows the commanders and staff to have a realistic uh, look at how North Korea will attack the South in various ways. And they are faced with dilemmas that they have to react to uh, and implement the, uh, the defense plan uh, for South Korea. Uh, so war is the worst case but we must deter it. The second of the big five is regime collapse. Uh, and this is something that, um, uh, that uh, we must be very concerned with. Uh, in my opinion, there will be no benign regime collapse. We will not see the fall of the Berlin Wall. 
You know, the, the DMZ will not come down like the, uh, the Berlin Wall. Uh, and that's because of the nature of the Kim family regime and, and the elite, in my opinion. Um, now, it's possible that, uh, that it could happen. And I hope that if it does happen, that it will be peaceful. Uh, but again, as a military officer, a military planner, we always plan for the worst case. And of course, the worst case in any kind of collapse and instability scenario is that those conditions that lead to instability and regime collapse could lead Kim Jong-un to make the decision uh, to execute his campaign plan to attack the South uh, in order to survive. Again, we say, well, he knows that he can't win a war with the South. Why would he do that? Well, in his calculus, it may be his only option. And of course, we don't know what his military officers are telling him. And in fact, in his inner circle uh, in the North, there's really only one military officer who's really a, a professional military officer. Most of those people we see wearing uniforms with medals from their shoulders to their waist uh, are political leaders. Uh, and uh, so they may not be giving him the best advice about the strength of the ROC-US alliance. And of course, given the nature of the regime and the, the fact that the only way you advance and survive is by demonstrating personal loyalty to the regime, you know, it may cause uh, those, those officers uh, to tell Kim Jong-un what they think he wants to hear. And if he's not getting accurate information about the threat and he's faced with conditions uh, that could end his regime, he could make the decision to go to war. Uh, so regime collapse is, is not, a, not necessarily a benign uh, activity. And it's something that we need to prepare for. And of course, the, the two forms of collapse we're concerned with are implosion, which those are the, uh, uh, the conditions remain inside North Korea, uh, which could range from uh, you know, humanitarian disaster uh, to civil war, uh, you know, chaos, anarchy, uh, and of course, loss of control of weapons of mass destruction uh, and, and the like. But those conditions remain inside North Korea. Then we have explosion, and that's where the conditions uh, spill out outside of North Korea to the south, uh, to China, perhaps to Russia, perhaps to Japan. And so we have, and of course, it may start out as implosion uh, and then advance and uh, transition to an explosion. Uh, and so we've got to be concerned with that. Now, the, the third of the big five uh, that we must be concerned about are human rights, human rights and crimes against humanity. Uh, the 2014 United Nations Commission of Inquiry uh, assessed that North Korea is conducting crimes against humanity on a scale we have not seen since World War II. Uh, and in fact, the, uh, the Commission of Inquiry recommended that the Security Council uh, refer Kim Jong-un to the International Criminal Court. Of course, the Security Council hasn't done that. It won't do that because uh, obviously um, uh, China and Russia will prevent that. Uh, but uh, it really goes to uh, the, uh, uh, the, the level of atrocities that are being committed. Now, human rights, of course, is a moral imperative. Uh, there, there's no doubt about that. It's a moral imperative. We must be concerned uh, with human rights. I mean, those are you know, fundamental American, South Korean, uh, you know, and, and uh, like-minded democracies. Those are common values that we all believe in. But it's also a national security issue. And first and foremost, it's a national security issue because Kim Jong-un must deny the human rights of the Korean people in the North 
in order to survive. In fact, Dr. Jung Pak, who's now the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, for uh, uh, East Asia Pacific, uh, she is when she was at Brookings uh, at conferences, she would often ask, who does Kim Jong-un fear more, the United States or the Korean people living in the North? And of course, the answer is it's the Korean people living in the North. And we can assess that based on how Kim Il-sung uh, devised uh, the system of, of governance inside North Korea, of course, communist party based, but the social classification system of what's called Songbun with 51 classes of society divided into three major categories, the elite, uh, the wavering class, the largest class in the middle, and of course the hostile class uh, at the very bottom. Uh, and this social classification system uh, is really uh, a system that basically enslaves the people and, and holds them to their, their class in society uh, with no real chance of any significant upward mobility uh, and, and of course keeps them in place. And of course they have many things uh, that, um, uh, that go into this. You know, obviously those who, who, uh, whose families owned land uh, before, before North Korea uh, uh, was founded, uh, technocrats, uh, anybody with connections to the South, all of these people are, uh, are, are at the lowest classes uh, of Songbun. And of course, one of the uh, little known uh, population, uh, uh, populations inside North Korea are the more than 78,000 South Korean prisoners of war that were never returned uh, to, uh, to South Korea. Almost 78,000 were left inside North Korea. And they were, uh, of course, sentenced to work in the mines, in the gulags. They ended up being allowed to marry uh, and you know, have families, uh, but their families were sentenced for life and for future generations as the lowest members of society. Uh, of course, most all of these have passed away, uh, but their descendants still exist. And, and, uh, and a handful have escaped over the years and family members have escaped. Uh, but it is something that is often overlooked uh, by international organizations and, uh, and human rights organizations. Uh, although the, the one I belong to, the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, uh, we, we are certainly uh, very concerned with, uh, with that situation. Now, the other point about human rights is that we should take a human rights upfront approach. Many people will say that uh, it's more important to get denuclearization. And if we focus on human rights, that Kim Jong-un will... Will, will not denuclearize, you know, he'll be upset. Um, and I think this is where we need to take a lesson from, from President Reagan. Uh, and when President Reagan was in power, you know, in, in uh, office, uh, he uh, negotiated uh, arms control with the Soviet Union, yet he never wavered from his commitment to human rights in the Soviet Union. You know, of course, his most famous words uh, to Gorbachev, you know, tear down this wall. And, uh, and he emphasized uh, human rights in the Soviet Union uh, while we negotiated arms control. And, and we should take a lesson from that because we should never fear uh, to address uh, and call out uh, North Korea's human rights abuses. It's important too, for two reasons. One is, as we focus on their nuclear program and the nuclear threat, we are actually reinforcing the legitimacy of the regime. You know, that feeds into 
the propaganda and agitation department's narratives, you know, that we're afraid of their nuclear power, uh, that, you know, North Korea is a strong, uh, has a strong military that is feared uh, around the world. Um, but when we focus on human rights, it's a threat to the regime. It's a threat to regime legitimacy. Uh, and we see how they react. Uh, they will, you know, of course, uh, uh, typical, they'll uh, uh, deny everything and, uh, and make, admit nothing, deny everything and make counter accusations. Uh, and they will, uh, they will do that because uh, they cannot afford to have human rights uh, be an issue and, and that the people inside North Korea uh, learn that their human rights are being abused and, uh, and they don't have the same rights as people in free countries around the world and especially to the South. Uh, and because of the South, that is one of the things that, uh, one of the, the most egregious human rights violations other than the physical torture, uh, rule of threes, three generations going to, uh, uh, going to the gulags, uh, you know, other than those atrocities, uh, one egregious form of human rights is the denial of information about the outside world. Uh, and Kim Jong-un fears the Korean people in the North when they have information about the outside world, in particular about South Korea. And this is why, uh, and you can see this in reports uh, coming out of North Korea from Radio Free Asia, from Voice of America, from the Daily NK, uh, where uh, people are, are thirsting for outside information. They love Korean dramas from the South that are smuggled in, uh, and they adopt uh, uh, the ways and culture of South Korea from wearing blue jeans to uh, adopting uh, uh, South Korean language terminology. Uh, and you see uh, the crackdowns by the regime, by the security services of those who are imitating uh, the culture of the South, those who are watching videos, those who have communications uh, through the, the 6.5 million smartphones that are inside North Korea um, and uh, uh, that will excuse me, um, that, uh, that, are, uh, that can communicate, the ones in the North can communicate with the Chinese cell phones uh, and they communicate with their uh, relatives uh, who are in the South. Uh, so information from the South is really key. And of course, we, we, can, we know it's a threat because of what happened in June of 2020. Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's sister, the bad cop, you know, she threatened South Korea uh, because of the information that South Korean escapees or defectors were sending to the North. You know, it's a threat. And so she threatened to have the liaison building in the Quezon Industrial Complex blown up. And she made that threat and then she made it come true. And then six months later in December of 2020, South Korea passed the anti-leaflet law, uh, which, you know, personally, I believe is wrong. It's uh, it it's a mistake on the South Korean part, uh, but it was in response to, uh, to North Korea's demands. Uh, and so, uh, but this is an indication of the real threat of information to, uh, to the survival of the regime. Now, the fourth of the big five are the asymmetric threats. And these are things we hear about regularly. Of course, the nuclear, uh, the nuclear capability, its missile capability from short range uh, medium range, intermediate range, and intercontinental ballistic missiles. 
and other kinds of rockets and missile systems, cruise missiles, of course, that were just tested, uh, that they reported were just tested. I've seen no open source reporting verifying the cruise missile uh, of the last weekend. Uh, but they have nuclear capabilities, missile capabilities, uh, and these are really designed to offset the superior military capabilities of the ROC US alliance uh, and to give them both deterrent capability as well as offensive military capabilities. The other asymmetric threats we don't often talk about. Uh, these are the proliferation of weapons and training to conflict areas around the world. You know, think about the scuds that the Houthis in Yemen are firing at Saudi Arabia, and you know, that may actually come from Iran, that actually come from North Korea. Uh, training small arms to conflict uh, zones in countries in Africa uh, and throughout the Middle East. Uh, they are conducting proliferation uh, in order to gain hard currency. I mean, they are for sale. Their training is for sale. Their weapons are for sale. Uh, and, and that's one of the ways that the regime uh, ensures that it has hard currency. Um, of course, we're hearing much more about cyber. And cyber is, you know, North Korea calls it the all-purpose sword. Uh, they call the nuclear program the treasured sword. And cyber is the all-purpose sword. I'm sure everybody's familiar with the Sony attack, uh, which was, again, a response to uh, the movie, the interview, the satire about North Korea, you know, which really hurt North Korea's feelings. It hurt their feelings so bad that they attacked Sony Pictures uh, and did some tremendous damage uh, to Sony through cyber. Uh, but they do much more. Uh, they are very sophisticated now, and their, their capabilities are, are increasing, uh, from stealing money, attempting to steal $81 million from Bangladesh, uh, to, um, uh, to ransomware, uh, you know, attacking hospitals uh, and, uh, and all kinds of malware, phishing attacks. Uh, you know, they are, I mean, they're so sophisticated now that we are seeing them uh, use members of Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, you know, cloning their accounts and, and trying to, to uh, contact uh, Korea watchers like myself, you know, conducting phishing attacks. And one of my favorite phishing attack, uh, just to give you an indication of the the sophistication of their cyber capabilities. They attacked the Chilean banking system. Uh, they used LinkedIn, they used Skype, uh, and they contacted uh, members of the Chilean banking system, the Bank of Chile, uh, and were recruiting them for, uh, for jobs. And they said, you know, we see you're looking for a job, we'd like to offer this. And they say, we'd like to send you an application. They would send them an application to their, uh, to their work email address, uh, and it would contain malware uh, that allowed them to penetrate the Chilean banking system and the ATM system uh, in, in Chile. And so, you know, that's an example of, of the sophistication. Don't think that North Korea is a backward country, uh, you know, stuck in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Of course, much of its infrastructure is, but they are developing very modern and sophisticated capabilities, uh, particularly in cyber. Uh, the other asymmetric capabilities, of course, they're special operations forces. They have what may be considered the largest special operations capability uh, in the North, uh, in the world, uh, which they will use to attack the rear areas in the South. And then lastly are the global illicit activities uh, that they are conducting, counterfeiting, uh, counterfeiting medicine, counterfeiting $100 bills, counterfeiting cigarettes, uh, and of course they're trafficking in methamphetamine uh, all around the world uh, using their diplomats and their, their uh, uh, embassies 
uh, to be able to conduct these illicit activities. Now, I used to really lament the fact that our national security system was not set up to, um, to counter these activities because we took a bilateral and a regional approach uh, and our diplomats and law enforcement agencies and intelligence community really you know, had no, uh, it wasn't really in their portfolio to track North Korea in Europe, in the Middle East, in Africa and South America. And I, I was making this statement to, uh, uh, to some of our diplomats uh, a few years ago, and they said, well, you'd be, you'd be surprised that the Secretary of State has made North Korea a priority and that our missions around the world are focused on them. And sure enough, over the next, you know, and this started in 2017 during Fire and Fury, I watched as countries like Peru, Mexico, the Philippines, uh, uh, Qatar, Poland, and, and many other countries expel diplomats uh, and really start enforcing local, their, their national laws uh, for people conducting illicit activities and international law, expelling diplomats for, uh, for conducting illegal activities. Our State Department has worked uh, a tremendous effort to try to help uh, our friends, partners, and allies and, and countries where North Korea is conducting illicit activities. Uh, so I, I commend our State Department uh, for their efforts. And I, you know, I, I, I want them to, uh, to continue uh, their great work. Now, the last of the five uh, of the big five, war, instability, and regime collapse, human rights and crimes against humanity, uh, and asymmetric threats. The last one is the, 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 really the challenge and the solution. And that is unification. Um, you know, unification is really uh, the the answer to the problem, uh, and it is something that uh, you know is of course very controversial. And you will hear many people say, you know, that South Korea doesn't want unification because of the costs. And sure enough, I mean, the costs of unification are going to be enormous. You know, I, I often jokingly say that uh, um, there are probably more PhD dissertations. Uh, done in South Korea on German unification than on any other subject. And the South Koreans have looked at German unification uh, and looked at the cost of, of unification of East and West Germany. Uh, and of course, it's very scary. And what makes matters worse is East and West Germany, although they were different systems and, and uh, you know, they, I mean, you know, capitalist and communist, uh, they weren't as far apart as North and South. Um, they, you know, yes, the East uh, was was not nearly as developed as the West uh, in Germany, but uh, uh, but they were closer together than the North and South. And so, when we look at the differences between the North and South, the disparity is just really unfathomable, fathomable uh, between the North and South. So, uh, so unification is a scary thing. However, you know, Korea has uh, has been unified. Uh, you know, up to, until 1945, when we, in fact, uh, caused uh, the division of the peninsula. Um, now, of course, uh, two army officers, uh, Charles Bonesteel and Dean Rusk, lieutenant colonels who were assigned to the State Department, they actually pulled off the biggest deception, uh, you know, one of the biggest deceptions of uh, World War II and the start of the Cold War. Uh, in, at the end of, of World War II, when Japan was surrendering, and um, we realized that we had no way to take the surrender of the Japanese army on the Korean Peninsula. And the Soviet Red Army uh, was in close proximity. Uh, and they could actually take the surrender of the entire uh, Japanese forces on the Korean Peninsula. And so Bonesteel and Rusk uh, 
you know, looked at the geographic, National Geographic map, uh, saw the 38th parallel, uh, and they convinced the Soviets to take the surrender north of the 38th parallel, uh, and the U.S. would take the surrender south. And that, of course, bought us time to get forces there uh, to be able to do that. But it de facto divided the peninsula on the 38th parallel. And of course, many people will say that we are the cause of the division, and then later the cause of the Korean War because of that division. Uh, however, I would remind everybody that had we not done that, the Soviet Union would have occupied the entire uh, peninsula. It would have been dominated by a communist, uh, it would have been a communist country uh, under the, the influence and control of the Soviet Union. And we would not be here talking about this today. Uh, so our, our division was a double-edged sword. It, uh, it uh, created the problem, but it also saved the now some 48 million people, 50 million people uh, in the South. Now, a couple points that you know, on unification as well, uh, there are four paths to unification. Uh, the, the fastest uh, way to unification and the, the way that will result in, in uh, probably the most decisive, decisive way to achieve unification is through war. Uh, we destroy, defeat and destroy the, the North Korean People's Army, destroy the infrastructure of North Korea, and then you rebuild from the bottom up. Obviously, we don't want to do that. We don't want to expend the blood and treasure of all Koreans and US and international forces, uh, but that's a path to unification. Uh, the second path, of course, is regime change, is, uh, I'm sorry, regime collapse, instability and regime collapse. But I caveat that with the possibility that could end, that could end with going to war as well. Um, the, the third and the desi most desirable one is peaceful unification. Uh, and I would argue this is the most difficult one uh, because you have to integrate uh, two political systems, two economic systems, two different uh, cultures founded on the same culture, but divergent cultures, uh, and of course, two militaries. Uh, and so you would have to, to completely integrate both of these. Uh, and I would argue that peaceful unification is what South Korea should always be planning for. And the reason for that is one, it's the morally right thing to do. We want peaceful unification. But two, uh, even though peaceful unification is unlikely to happen, all of the planning for peaceful unification can be applied in any of the other situations. You know, even after war, even after regime collapse, uh, you are going to apply much of the same planning uh, that you will for peaceful unification uh, in those scenarios. But the fourth plan, the fourth path to unification is the outlier path. Uh, and this is where there is internal regime change inside North Korea, where there is, you know, someone from the elite, there is some kind of change that we cannot see coming, that we will not see happen. Uh, but it may have emerging, uh, an emerging leader who may seek peaceful unification uh, as the only way to survive, uh, because it won't be the Kim family regime. Uh, a new leader who seeks his own survival, but survival of the Kim, of the Korean people in the North and of the nation state. And the only way to do that may be through a peaceful, gradual unification. And in that situation, of course, if the South has planned for peaceful unification, uh, then you have a, uh, an opportunity uh, to execute those plans. Uh, so unification is, uh, is, is a key point uh, and something we should focus on. Um, a couple other points that I, I will uh, cover. Um, you know, since the, the 2018 
uh, Singapore summit, uh, the, the agreement that was made uh, between Trump and Kim, uh, it appears that uh, the Biden administration still wants to implement that. Uh, and, and that's, you know, there were four basic things uh, in, that, uh, in that agreement, uh, but uh, it was really summarized in this way, really a change in the relationship to include an end of the war, um, normalization, uh, and, uh, um, and of course, denuclearization of the, of the entire Korean peninsula. Uh, and then of course, return of uh, missing in action remains a missing in action, which North Korea provided a small amount, 55 remains uh, immediately after that in 2007, uh, 2018. Uh, uh, not all of those were Americans, some were, were Korean. And in fact, President Moon, who's you know, in New York uh, for the UN General Assembly meeting this week, when he returns to Korea, he will be going to Hawaii uh, to, uh, to repatriate South Korean remains uh, that had been returned and identified uh, at our, uh, our laboratory in Hawaii. And he will bring those uh, and, and escort those remains back to South Korea. Um, so, but the, the, the agreement in Singapore uh, was, as I said, really about changing the relationship. But what the North really wants is immediate sanctions relief. And this is really, uh, really important. Um, the Biden administration, you know, basically agrees with the points of, of the, uh, of the uh, agreement uh, and wants to implement them, but also wants to ensure full implementation of UN Security Council resolutions. And this is important uh, because uh, the UN Security Council resolutions, you know, cover nuclear, uh, ballistic missiles, uh, human rights, uh, and you know, and cyber, and and uh, and all the uh, illicit activities uh, that that the North is conducting. And uh, you know, many people think that we should lift those sanctions as a uh, as a concession and as a carrot uh, to bring Kim Jong Un to the negotiating table. The problem with that is is that if we give concessions without substantive steps towards denuclearization, verifiable steps toward denuclearization, Kim Jong-un will, will judge his political warfare strategy, his blackmail diplomacy, his long con a success, uh, where he can get something basically for nothing from, from us, which is the pattern of negotiation over the last seven decades. Uh, and so, we don't want to prematurely lift sanctions. The other thing, for those who want to lift sanctions, I will make this argument. You know, one is sanctions are not going to lead to denuclearization. Sanctions are to cut off resources uh, to influence uh, stopping its malign behavior. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and they don't lead directly to denuclearization, uh, but they do cut off resources. Now, Kim Jong-un has worked uh, to evade sanctions. China and Russia are complicit in sanctions evasion, uh, even though they supported them in 2017, uh, the, the sanctions in 2017 at the UN Security Council. You know, since then, they have uh, undermined the sanctions regime uh, and, and allowed uh, Kim Jong-un to, to, uh, to evade sanctions and, and have been complicit in that. Uh, but also, Kim Jong-un has been using its illicit activities, his illicit activities, to gain resources, to fund his royal court economy. Uh, and uh, he actually has been you know, raking in 
you know, millions, hundreds of millions, uh, if not billions of dollars uh, in illicit activities. Uh, and though, you know, many people will say that sanctions are hurting the people in the North. Uh, and I would argue against that. It is not the sanctions. It is the deliberate policy decisions of Kim Jong-un who chooses to prioritize his nuclear and missile programs over the welfare of the Korean people in the North. Uh, and so, you know, he has the ability, one, he can comply with the requirements of sanctions to have them lifted and his nuclear program and his missile program, stop his illicit activities, uh, stop human rights violations. I mean, that's the easiest way, uh, you know, that, uh, that he could uh, end sanctions. Um, and, uh, you know, or he can prioritize and he can shift his resources away from nuclear and missiles and modernizing his military to taking care of the welfare of the Korean people. Uh, but he chooses not to do that. And so we should not be, um, you know, lulled and, and duped into giving sanctions relief uh, with the idea that it will help the Korean people. It will not help the Korean people because uh, there is a lack of transparency and histor historically, <coughs> Kim has diverted, uh, the regime has diverted uh, aid uh, to, uh, to support the military and support the elite. The other aspect of, of sanctions relief is that if you, if you advocate for sanctions relief, you have to explain what malign behavior by North Korea you want to condone, uh, which means if you lift sanctions, do you want to allow continued nuclear development? You want to allow continued ballistic missile development. You want to allow continued proliferation. You want to allow continued uh, illicit activities. And do you want to allow continued human rights violations? Uh, because if you are lifting sanctions without uh, any change of North Korean behavior, you are in effect condoning that malign behavior by North Korea. And lastly, uh, if we do lift sanctions uh, for only a promise to talk, Kim Jong-un is going to assess that his strategy has been successful and he will double down and he will continue his blackmail diplomacy using threats, increased tensions and provocations to gain political and economic concessions. And we can look at it, the pattern of activity from uh, the time the Biden administration has assumed office until now as really setting the conditions uh, to make the demands for sanctions relief in return for talks. Uh, and it would be a mistake for us uh, to, uh, to, to give in to that uh, because it will not lead to productive talks. And my assessment of the Biden administration's policy is, uh, in effect, is that they are giving Kim Jong-un the opportunity to act as a responsible member of the international community. And that's really as the bottom line. He has a choice to come to the table, to negotiate uh, as, a, as a responsible member, uh, to negotiate in good faith, uh, to do what is right for the people uh, of the North uh, and, uh, and to make a change. Uh, unfortunately, you know, that is not in his nature uh, and change and reform, uh, of course, undermine his legitimacy. Uh, and based on the last 70 years, I'm convinced that he thinks uh, that he can outplay us, uh, that he can, he can wait us out. And, uh, and I think it would be a mistake for us to be impatient uh, and to, uh, and to, in effect, appease him, uh, and because that will definitely blow back on us. Um, let me just uh, uh, soon conclude here uh, with um, uh, talk about uh, 
their uh, uh, the peace treaty. Um, Congressman uh, Brad Sherman has introduced legislation to uh, uh, calling on the U.S. to implement a peace treaty with North Korea. Um, you know, obviously, as I said, I want peace. Uh, I want real peace. Uh, you know, I want to see unification. I want to see a good life for all Korean people. Uh, but entering into a peace agreement with the North is problematic uh, because, uh, you know, it is a desire by Kim Jong-un uh, to, uh, to get U.S. forces off the Korean Peninsula. And having a peace agreement between the North and the U.S. Uh, can be used as a lever uh, and rationale to justify the removal of U.S. troops. Now, the presence of U.S. troops is not because of the armistice, is, is not because of the war. The presence of U.S. troops are governed by the 1953 Mutual Defense Treaty, uh, which is a short six paragraphs, which uh, basically calls on both South Korea and the United States uh, to defend each other from threats in the Asia Pacific region, not from North Korea. Uh, does, the Mutual Defense Treaty does not mention North Korea. Uh, it's a bilateral agreement uh, to defend each other uh, from threats in the region. Uh, and so even if there is a peace agreement uh, and you know, if the United Nations command is disbanded, uh, the presence of US troops will be governed uh, by the Mutual Defense Treaty and a decision by both countries on whether US troops remain. Uh, but uh, Kim Jong-un wants to use this as a lever uh, to drive troops off the peninsula. And of course, he could be playing into uh, US politics uh, and in fact, if there's a peace agreement that many in the United States may say, well, then we don't need U.S. forces on the Korean Peninsula. And so that may lead him to uh, or lead us uh, to withdraw our troops, depending on the political situation. That said, we have always enjoyed strong congressional bipartisan support for Korean security and for the alliance. Uh, but, uh, you know, this legislation that has been introduced uh, could have detrimental effects. The second thing about a peace agreement is that, you know, theoretically, the U.S. doesn't have standing to enter into a peace agreement. We did not declare war on North Korea. And, and of course, the Chinese did not intervene officially uh, either. They sent the Chinese People's Volunteers. But we intervened in North Korea under the U.N. flag uh, and the U.N. command, which, of course, uh, the U.N. Security Council put the United States in charge of the U.N. command. Uh, but the United States technically did not sign the armistice, nor did President Sigmund Rhee, uh, who boycotted it. Uh, but uh, it, the commander uh, who signed the, uh, the, the general that signed the armistice, General Harrison, was signing as a representative of the UN command uh, and not as uh, uh, an official of the, uh, of, uh, of the United States government. And so we really don't have standing. Furthermore, the UN Security Council resolutions in 1950, 82, 83, 84, and 85, recognized North Korea as the aggressor uh, that attacked South Korea. And the resolutions called on member states to come to the aid to defend freedom of the South. Uh, and so the two belligerents are really North and South Korea. And that's where a peace treaty uh, should be brokered and negotiated. Uh, the problem with that is that both countries uh, do not recognize the existence of the other. Both their constitutions claim sovereignty over the entire peninsula and all the Korean people. So in order to enter into a peace agreement, uh, they would have to change their constitutions theoretically uh, and you know, recognize the existence of the other country. The problem with that is 
is that, uh, well, that sounds good, theoretically, it does not change the hostile and offensive posture of the North Korean People's Army. You know, uh, 2.1 million soldiers, 70% of which are arrayed along the DMZ from the DMZ to Pyongyang, prepared for offensive operations. Now, yes, their military is obsolete, uh, is weakened and devastated by uh, uh, food shortages and the like. But uh, as Stalin once said, quantity has a quality all its own. Uh, and they have the ability to do tremendous damage uh, against the South. And my argument would be that, uh, and, and I would ask that Congress add this to the legislation, that no peace agreement between North and South be supported without a reduction in conventional forces uh, in the frontline area. Uh, a withdrawal of North Korean forces 20 to 40 kilometers, which would give sufficient time for intelligence indications and warning of any attack uh, and would allow uh, a more secure defense of South Korea. Uh, that is a minimum uh, requirement for, uh, uh, for um, uh, any kind of peace agreement. So uh, we're coming up on the hour here and, um, and I will uh, conclude there uh, by saying that uh, when I talk about uh, North Korea and South Korea and unification, uh, my belief is that, uh, that a unified Korea should really, um, uh, really be uh, defined as a secure, stable, uh, economically vibrant, uh, non-nuclear uh, peninsula uh, that is uh, under a liberal constitutional form of government with freedom, individual liberty, uh, a free market economy, and human rights for all, uh, which would really be described as a United Republic of Korea. The acronym would be U-R-O-K, or uh, in, uh, in this case, you could pronounce it as U-R-O-K. And so um, I'm happy to take uh, everybody's, uh, anybody's questions, uh, and I look forward to, uh, uh, to that. Thank you. Thank you, Colonel, Thank you. for such an insightful and important lecture. And we'll take uh, questions now. So if you have any questions, please type them in the Q&A chat box. So our first question is actually from uh, IWP professor. Thank you, Colonel, for an illuminating and insightful presentation and for your years of dedicated service to our nation. My question is, given that North Korea has a vote that they will never give up their nuclear weapons and have even stated as such in their constitution, do you think it would be acceptable to the US and South Korea to accept North Korea as a de facto nuclear state in exchange for a verifiable freeze in their nuclear and missile programs and other confidence building measures such as rejoining the MPT and joining the MTCR? Uh, well, you know, that I, I think is, um... You know, one, I, I agree with you that uh, the North Korea, North Korea doesn't want to give up its nuclear weapons. They believe they're key to survival. Uh, and, uh, you know, and we have to face that fact. Uh, although, uh, again, I say that, you know, as my belief, uh, I hope I'm wrong. You know, I hope we could negotiate uh, denuclearization. Uh, but uh, given my understanding of the regime and its objectives and, uh, and strategy, I just don't think it's willing to. Now, I think what you're describing uh, is what, what some people are calling 
you know, a, a phase negotiation, a step-by-step -step negotiation uh, where, you know, we can take small steps uh, towards denuclearization. And I, I say denuclearization uh, because I don't think that we should, uh, you know, recognize them as a, as a nuclear state. Uh, Dr. Bruce Bennett from, uh, from RAND Corporation, he describes North Korea as a non-compliant, meaning non-complying with the NPT, a non-compliant, unsafe nuclear experimenter, and uh, which I, I like that uh, description of, of the North. Uh, but um, we, we, I, I don't think that we want to uh, recognize them as a nuclear state, even along the lines of Pakistan or you know India, Israel, uh, and those those kind of states, because I think that uh, if we do that, we are really supporting the North's uh, 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 strategy. Uh, which is ultimately to dominate the peninsula. And so, you know, while we focus on the nuclear program, you rightly so, the threats to South Korea, the region, and perhaps the United States, if they miniaturize a nuclear weapon and, and can mount it on ICBM, it is a, a potentially a threat to us. We have to focus on that. But the nuclear weapons program is just a symptom of the problem. And the symptom of the problem is uh, the zero sum between North and South. And although the South wants to negotiate wants to engage, uh, wants to have a phased unification, you know, one country, two systems process. Uh, you know, the North uh, doesn't support that. The North will use that process to subvert the South in order to achieve its objectives, which is to dominate the Korean Peninsula. And so I think that if we uh, de facto, even de facto, accept them as a nuclear power, we are actually, uh, you know, tacitly supporting their long-term plan to dominate the peninsula. Uh, you know, so I don't think we should do that. That said, I think we should negotiate. And of course, we have offered to negotiate anywhere, anytime without conditions. We are ready to negotiate. I, I, there's no doubt about that, uh, that uh, we are ready to do that. It is Kim Jong-un uh, that refuses to negotiate. Uh, and, and even you know, during the Trump period, uh, while he negotiated directly with Trump, uh, he never really allowed substantive negotiations uh, with uh, our special representative, uh, Steve Began, uh, and, and his negotiating, negotiating team and the North Korean negotiating team. Kim Jong-un just would not allow that uh, to, uh, uh, to happen in any meaningful way. Uh, and so, and I think he fears uh, an agreement that could be made, uh, an interim agreement uh, that would not be uh, in his favor. Uh, and as we saw at Hanoi, uh, while we thought we might be close to some kind of interim agreement, uh, Young Beyond Nuclear Facility, um, you know, that really fell through because we made demands, uh, and I think rightly so, uh, for more than just Young Beyond, because Young Beyond alone does not uh, uh, freeze their nuclear program. Uh, and so, and of course, as, as many will say, we've, we've bought Young Beyond two or three times already, uh, and, uh, you know, we shouldn't pay for it again. Uh, and, uh, and so, and of course, we're seeing reports uh, this summer that, uh, it looks like they may be reprocessing uh, uh, nuclear material again uh, to continue to make bombs. So uh, I think we have to negotiate, but we have to negotiate and, and we have to continue deterrence. Uh, we've got to keep their threat at bay uh, until uh, really in, in reality, until there's a change inside North Korea. And that change is that Kim Jong-un either becomes, uh, it decides to become a responsible member of the international community and negotiate uh, responsibly and, and sincerely, or there is uh, some kind of new leadership 
that would seek to negotiate. Um, and I'm not advocating external regime change in any way, uh, but uh, you know there is, uh, you know, and should be uh, a possibility uh, that change could come from within, and uh, we should be open to that and uh, and be supportive of that as well. So long answer, but uh, <laughs> but uh, hopefully that uh, that uh, gives you my position. Thank you, Colonel. And the next question is: Do we have any intelligence assets in North Korea? <laughs> uh, well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I no longer have a security clearance, so I, um, uh, you know, so I have no longer a security clearance, so I don't know whether we do or not. And if I did know, I, I would not say because I, I certainly wouldn't want to compromise that. But in, in truth, I don't know uh, because I, I'm no longer privy to that kind of information. That said, I will say uh, that we are very dependent on our technical means. Uh, our overhead imagery, our satellite imagery, our air breathers, uh, the U-2, uh, you know, Global Hawk, uh, Rivet Joint, uh, you know, many intelligence, ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance assets uh, that we routinely surveil the peninsula, looking for indicators of, of course, attack, looking for indicators of instability, and looking for indicators of nuclear and, and missile tests and the like. So we're very dependent on uh, on technical intelligence, satellite signals intelligence, uh, and, uh, and other reconnaissance assets. Um, you know, what you're really asking uh, about is human intelligence. And, uh, and you know, that's hard. North Korea is a hard target. Uh, and and I, I just don't have an answer uh, for you on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think we can all conclude uh, that someone who looks like me would have a hard time operating inside North Korea. Uh, and, I think someone also who's six feet tall, uh, even if he is Korean from South Korea, uh, you know, he's Korean, would still have a hard time uh, with, uh, we'd have to put some South Koreans on starvation diets to, uh, to fit into the, into the North uh, there. So I think it's, it's hard, it's difficult, uh, but I, I, I will say that uh, we are primarily dependent on technical intelligence. Thank you. And uh, we have a series of questions. So how would China react to any regime change through war? Can we reunify the Korean people? We couldn't do Iraq and Afghanistan. So doesn't the US play a supporting diplomatic role to South Korea make more sense? Thank you. Absolutely. I agree with, with the premise of your question. It is not for the US to unify. And I apologize. Uh, I use we uh, an awful lot. And I, I don't mean we as in the US. I mean, we as in the Rock us Alliance and specifically to your excellent comment in your question there, it is really about the US supporting unification of the Korean Peninsula. One of the reasons why uh, the OPCON transition process is so important and that the ROC US Combined Forces Command will be commanded by a Korean general in the future uh, is to prevent what you're talking about. We do not wanna conduct US operations inside North Korea and give the appearance uh, that we are an occupier. Uh, we don't want to recreate Afghanistan and Iraq. Of course, Korea is much different than those, uh, but there are lessons to be learned, comparisons to be made. Um, but when we think about unification and the long-term legitimacy, unification must be accomplished by the Koreans. Uh, I think we have a responsibility to help, to support, as does the international community. But in the end, unification has to be done by, by the Koreans. Uh, and, uh, and I think we have a moral obligation to support them. 
Uh, and we will, if the Combined Forces Command has to operate inside North Korea, there will be U.S. forces uh, side by side with Korean forces. But when you look at the the uh, the numbers of forces that will will either fight the war or deal with North Korean instability, the vast majority of them will be South Korean forces, not U.S. forces. Unlike any other situation, uh, you know, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, where the U.S. was the dominant force. Uh, and the Korean Peninsula, in war, instability, or regime collapse, the dominant force will be South Korean. Uh, but we must support them. And so I agree with you uh, that uh, we do not want to force unification. We don't want to, uh, to make unification happen. We want to support the Koreans as they achieve unification. Uh, and again, for the long-term legitimacy of a unified Korea, uh, that, that's really important. And the, the military presence operating on the Korean Peninsula should be led by a Korean general uh, to reduce the perception uh, that the U.S. Is, uh, is in some way trying to drive unification. Thank you. And we have a quick question about one of the photos. Could you uh, pull up the last picture again? The question is, who are the four shown in the last picture? Uh, yes, I think you're uh, you're looking at uh, at Moon Jae In uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Kim Jong Un and uh, the two children. Let's see. I'm looking for the share. Oh, here's share screen here. And uh, yeah, so you're looking at this at this photo here. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, those are two children, South Korean children, uh, and I don't know who they were, uh, who they are specific, but they're from South Korea, and uh, they were part of the uh, the welcoming uh, delegation, uh, and uh, and I don't know if that was planned or not, uh, but uh, uh, it certainly is a great photo op and, and something that uh, you know they are the future, you know, as opposed to uh, you know this next uh, um, the next. Uh, uh, picture of this one, you know, this young Korean from the North in his military uniform. Um, you know, I, I will tell you that, uh, you know, to give you an indication of, of, of how Koreans in the North are taught to hate, uh, you know, the outside world, to include South Korea, to include China, Russia, but especially the United States, um, you know, as an indication, uh, they, um, they will be teaching this young boy math and uh, they'll say, if you, have, uh, if you have four American bastards and you kill two American bastards, how many American bastards will you have left? Uh, you know, and that, <laughs> you know, that is a, a way that uh, culture and politics are integrated into, uh, into education. Uh, but, you know, they learn that from the, the youngest age. And I, I will say that uh, as an anecdote, uh, I met a, a Korean woman from the North, an escapee, and I, I like to call them escapees, not defectors. Defectors is a real pejorative term that you are a traitor to your country. Uh, and I would rather describe them as escapees from the North who, are, uh, who have escaped the most despotic regime in the world. But she told us that she believed in sh that she was free inside North Korea. Uh, she grew up being free because she was told by the regime she was free. And when their family got into trouble, they ended up escaping across the Chinese border, made their way through China. Uh, to Thailand and, and were uh, eventually uh, repatriated to South Korea. And she said when she arrived in South Korea, she understood that she had never uh, um, understood what freedom uh, was until she got to South Korea and saw freedom in action, people dressing the way they want, talking the way they want, doing what they want. But she was still 
scared. She was still afraid of uh, being in South Korea because she was on the lookout for American soldiers uh, because she had been taught that American soldiers occupy, uh, occupy the South and that American soldiers uh, can abuse Korean women uh, you know, at their whim. And so she thought that uh, that might happen to her. And of course, she quickly learned from, uh, you know, Koreans that, uh, you know, America does not occupy. She never saw an American soldier. Uh, and, uh, and then she eventually came to the United States. And it was the most heartwarming thing to hear her say that, uh, you know, she, she learned about freedom in, in South Korea. But when she came to Washington, D.C., she really saw freedom and, and felt that she experienced it. But I think that's really important for people like all of us to understand you know, we have grown up with freedom. We, we have experienced this as our way of life. It is really difficult to understand, I think, you know, to put ourselves in their shoes and not understand what freedom is. And, uh, and that, I think, is, is hard for us to understand. And it's something that we must understand, uh, you know, and, and again, I say we, uh, I really mean South Korea with U.S. support, uh, but it's something that, that must be understood about the nature of the Koreans in the North. Uh, the other thing I will say on the difference between North and South, um, everybody here is familiar with the miracle on the Han and uh, the, 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 you know, how South Korea rose from the ashes of the Korean War, uh, was, was a major aid recipient in the 1950s, the only country to go from a major aid recipient to a major donor nation in the world. Uh, and of course, the Korean wave, the development of the economy, the development of, uh, of, of a democratic political system, uh, you know, and, and of course, culture, you know, BTS today performed at the UN, uh, you know, South Korea is the 10th largest economy in the world, you know, soft power uh, uh, practitioners. Uh, so, so that is the miracle on the Han. And, uh, and this Korean admiral, we were at a conference and he said, there's two miracles in the Korea, in Korea. And I said, yes, I understand the miracle on the Han. What's the other miracle? And he said, the miracle is the miracle on the Taedong. And the Taedong is a river that cuts through Pyongyang like the Han goes through, through Seoul. And I said, well, what is the miracle on the Taedong? He said, the miracle is after 70 years, the Korean people in the North are still surviving under the most despotic rule uh, in really in history, perhaps. Uh, and, and his point was that, you know, up until 1945, Korea was one nation occupied by Japan. Japan tried to, um, tried to eliminate Korean culture, Korean language, Korean names. Uh, remember the, the Korean marathoner in the 1938 uh, Olympics uh, who won the, the marathon and, and kept his Korean name, you know, under protest there. Uh, and, you know, they, they tried to eliminate it and the Koreans, you know, resisted. The Koreans kept their culture. Um, Koreans had no free market economy, no history of democracy, but South Korea evolved that way. And, and Korea has faced much hardship in its 5,000 years of history. And, and what this admiral told me is said, that uh, you know, if given the opportunity, Koreans will thrive. You know, and that's what what the miracle on the Han is. From from no history, uh, nothing in its culture for democracy and free market economy, South Korea thrived. You know, and so given the opportunity, they will thrive. But faced with hardship, Koreans know how to survive, and and that's really key. Uh, faced with opportunity, given opportunity, they thrive. Faced with hardship, they survive, and that is. The, the common nature of Koreans on both sides, even though, you know, they, they've now grown such divergent, even the language is different 
You know, North Korea has maintained a very homogeneous language. South Korea's language has evolved to, you know, adopting many international words and, uh, and, and phrases and things. And, you know, South Korea is a global country. And, uh, and so there's much differences, but at the root is the same culture, you know, the same Confucian-based culture, uh, you know, that, again, if given the opportunity, uh, uh, they, will, they will thrive and, and, uh, and if given hardship, they will survive. When you look at the arduous march, the famine of 1994 to 1996, what really saved the people after that famine, where as many as 3 million people may have perished because of the effects of the famine, they didn't starve to death, but they, they perished because of the effects. Um, what saved them were two things, the sunshine policy in the South that provided millions of dollars of aid, hundreds of millions of dollars of aid to the regime, uh, and, and the growth of markets. The, the communist socialist public distribution system failed. They weren't able to provide food, but families, women uh, had the entrepreneurial spirit to develop these markets. And now there's over 400 markets uh, that are semi-authorized inside North Korea that have really been the safety valve for the people. And what is really, and, and that's allowed the people to survive these last few decades and, and really in many ways flourish in a relative sense inside North Korea. The sad thing is since COVID, Kim Jong-un has, has long viewed these markets as a threat, as the, the use of foreign currency, information. And when COVID hit, they closed the border to China to both legal trade and smuggling activities, which are essential for these markets to thrive. They've you know, stopped movement. They've stopped the use of foreign currency, tried to, tried to uh, collect it, and of course, stopping the flow of information, uh, which is critical to market activity. And so... Uh, the, the regime is cracking down, you know, making deliberate decisions that are causing the suffering of the Korean people. And without the markets and without external aid, uh, the Korean people in the North are going to are suffering horrendously. Uh, and, you know, I have to think that there's going to be eventually a breaking point if there is not a not relief and, and relief will not come through sanctions, lifting sanctions. You know, relief can only come through the deliberate decision-making of Kim Jong-un to prioritize resources and allow resources to go to uh, the people. You know, it, it's a paradox, but, uh, you know, South Korea, the United States, the international community has offered vaccines, food aid, uh, and, and really, we are more concerned with the welfare of the Korean people in the North than is Kim Jong-un. Uh, he has refused aid. He refused 3 million vaccines, uh, refused the Chinese vaccine you know, his only ally, uh, and, uh, and he's refused that. So, um, you know, the, the, the reason for suffering in the North is because of Kim Jong-un, not because of us or the international community. Sorry, to, you got me going on that one. Thank you, Colonel, for such a thoughtful answer. <laughs> and the next question is, would South Korea join us in any actions against China if China attacked Taiwan? Uh, that's a that's a tough question. Uh, a little bit of history uh, is that uh, um, China is still upset with North Korea because North Korea's attack of the South prevented China from completing unification in 1950. Uh, Mao had planned to uh, uh, to invade Taiwan and to unify China, uh, and so in uh, the Korean War and and the UN forces. Uh, that got almost to the Yalu River, or in Korea, the Amnakgang, uh, you know, that uh, caused China to have to intervene to defend itself, and uh, because they felt that the United States wouldn't stop at the river. And so, uh, and that prevented China from completing unification. So, you know, you go back to history there. 
Now, just to give you a, a, a quick anecdote, I've been involved in some track two uh, uh, talks with South Korean uh, officials, retired officials, military and government officials, and Chinese military and government officials, and US military and government officials. And we've looked at many of the contingencies and scenarios. And one of the things that, that uh, you know, that uh, struck me was that, um, you know, if there's instability in Korea, the Chinese would say that they don't want to see that used as an excuse uh, for South Korea to unify uh, Korea. Then they go on to say that, on the other hand, they empathize with their Korean uh, friends because China too wants unification. You know, and so they're really expressing kind of a quid pro quo. Well, if you have South Korean unification, we want to have Chinese unification. Now, to your specific question, um, you know, uh, if there is a war on, on, in Taiwan uh, and the threat of North Korea still exists, I cannot see uh, South Korea becoming engaged uh, in, uh, in a war uh, to defend Taiwan uh, because it would really severely, potentially severely weaken South Korean military forces and our deterrence and defense. Uh, and so, um, you know, we have to be very cognizant of if there is a threat to Taiwan, you know, how will Kim Jong-un react? And my belief is that as long as that threat from North Korea exists, it's an existential threat to South Korea. And therefore the priority must be on deterring North Korean attack. And if deterrence fails, defending South Korea. Uh, so while South Korea certainly has capabilities in Aegis cruisers and, uh, you know, and certainly F-35 aircraft now, F-16s, F-15s, the KF-15s, you know, they have, they have capabilities that could be very useful in supporting uh, the defense of Taiwan as part of an international coalition, the United States, Japan, you know, Taiwan, Australia, the UK, uh, that, that might defend Taiwan. Uh, I think it would be a mistake to ask South Korea to commit to that as long as that threat exists uh, from North Korea. And uh, because we've got to be concerned with uh, how Kim Jong-un might react uh, if we are distracted uh, because of a threat to Taiwan. Thank you. And uh, due to the limit of time, we'll just take a series of two more questions. What do you think South Korea should do in order to join the QUAD or similar multilateral alliance group like AUKUS, AUKUS? And to what extent can North Korea can be a problem for South Korea in order to join the multilateral alliance groups? So the Quad, India, um, uh, Japan, the United States and Australia, uh, you know, started after the tsunami in 2004, a quasi-security arrangement, but it is not an alliance. And I think it's important to, to remember that. Um, you know, South Korea walks a tightrope between China and the United States. Now, obviously, the United States is South Korea's security partner, uh, but 25% of, of South Korean trade uh, is with China. Uh, and we saw the, the power of Chinese economic warfare uh, waged against South Korea in 2016 and 17 when we deployed the THAAD missile defense system that upset China. And they punished South Korea uh, with economic warfare uh, during that time. And so South Korea is obviously very sensitive to that. Uh, now, another 25% of South Korean trade is with the Quad. Uh, and so 25% with China, 25% with the Quad, and the 50% the rest of the world, Europe and, you know, and uh, the Middle East and Africa and, and Latin America. So, um, but China is by far the largest 
uh, trading partner of South Korea. So it has uh, tremendous economic influence. If South Korea were to join the Quad, we must expect economic warfare from, from China and uh, their displeasure. Uh, and so while I would theoretically like South Korea to join the Quad, and the reason for that is, is the Quad really exists not to counter China, but that's how it's described these days, but really to defend the rules-based international order, you know, that like-minded democracies all believe in. You know, we believe in that rules-based international order. And in fact, I think, you know, we welcome China's participation in that, but you got to follow the rules. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, the Quad, I think, is more than a security relationship. Uh, it is about defending the, the international rules-based order. Now, AUKUS, Australia, uh, the UK and the United States have just formed an agreement. Now it's it's not it can't be considered an alliance because we haven't had a treaty that's been ratified by the the uh, the Senate, uh, which is a hard thing to do. But it is a new security arrangement, and of course, as part of that, uh, the most controversial part is that we've we've of course agreed to provide uh, technology to allow uh, Australia to develop. Uh, nuclear-powered submarines, uh, which, of course, caused them to back out of a deal with France uh, for their, their diesel submarines. And, uh, and so that's, that's caused a, a diplomatic domino effect. But South Korea joining uh, the Quad, it's something I would like to see happen, but I respect the fact that they have to walk that tightrope and uh, they have to deal with, with China as the, the bull in the China shop, so to say, the 600-pound gorilla uh, that could, could affect them. Uh, I think if they do join the Quad, the Quad must be prepared uh, to come to the economic defense of South Korea uh, to mitigate the effects of Chinese economic warfare. Uh, but, um, but right now, I don't see South Korea joining it. Now, South Korea and the United States, in terms of strategy in the Pacific, uh, have a lot in common. You know, we have the free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, South Korea has their new, new Southern strategy, uh, which really are, are much alignment. And, and of course, if you go back to the, uh, uh, the Moon-Biden uh, uh, summit in May and look at the agreements that, uh, uh, that were made, uh, both in their statement, but also in the fact sheet uh, that's available at the White House website, uh, it really envisions uh, a strong partnership of, of the U.S. and South Korea throughout the Indo-Pacific and then throughout the world. Uh, in cyber and climate change and, uh, you know, health and, uh, and, and uh, humanitarian issues and, and the like there. So uh, there's, there's a lot of synergy uh, without necessarily joining the quad per se. Um, now, I don't think that they would, that there'd be any joining of AUKUS because I think that's a specific trilateral arrangement uh, done for a specific purpose. Uh, but we should also keep in mind that these different agreements, uh, we should look at them, you know, we have a strong bilateral ROC-US alliance, a strong bilateral Japan-US alliance, Philippine-US, Thailand-US, and Australian-US. Those are our Indo-Pacific alliances, you know, and then we have friends and partners uh, throughout as well. But we will never see and replicate a NATO in Asia. And, and so I, I think that that's just not gonna happen, but these bilateral and small multilateral arrangements uh, really can provide synergy uh, to, uh, uh, again, to, to accomplish the common objective, which I think, again, is protection of the international rules-based order. If we protect the international rules-based order, we can all thrive and, uh, and we can compete on an even, uh, on an even footing.
And, and so that's, I think, what, uh, what we should be focused on. Thank you, Colonel. And lastly, we have a comment from Mr. John Cha from the Mumang Cho Foundation saying, thank you for the excellent presentation. I'm glad that you mentioned the 78,000 RKA POWs detained in North Korea after the war. Yes, and, and uh, I hope everybody takes that. That's something that we really should uh, focus on and, and recognize and respect for the suffering that they had and the descendants of them. You know, most of them have passed. Uh, there are a few that uh, are still alive. Some have escaped, uh, but we should remember them and remember their descendants and how they are, uh, you know, being treated so terribly uh, inside North Korea. Uh, thank you, Amanda, and to the Institute of World Politics. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to, uh, uh, to participate in this. Thank you again, Colonel Maxwell, for such an insightful and fa uh, fascinating lecture. And I look forward to seeing you all on October 12th with um, Ambassador Lee Jong-hun, former South Korean ambassador to the United Nations. And again, thank you very much. And this concludes our event today.